It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Everywhere you go Take a look at the five and ten It's glistening once again With candy canes and silver lanes that glow It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Toys in every store But the prettiest sight to see Is the holly that will be On your own front door Hello and welcome to the Whitney Talking News Chris Magazine for 2023 which we're recording in the Methodist Building in Whitney on Monday the 11th of December. I'm Peter Bean, I edited this magazine and seated beside me at the recording controls is Eric Imanson. Our contributors and readers to this magazine in alphabetical order are Peter B, Peter Brading, Debbie Diakon, Nigel James, Valerie Palmer and Alan Ravel, with some contributions from our former editor from her home in Devon, Jane Holmes. So, Nigel, let's begin with Giles Brandreth's thoughts on Christmas. Christmas is special. Christmas is magic. It's a time of warmth and peace. A season when we can revel unshamedly in nostalgia and tradition. The cynics amongst us have described Christmas as a period of preparations, invitations, anticipations, relations, frustrations and prostration and recuperation. But most of all, it is a time of celebration. It has always been, and let's hope it always will be. In the Christian world... Christmas is celebrated in remembrance of the birth of Christ. It is literally the Mass of Christ. Yet, strangely, the rituals associated with this religious festival are of a pagan origin and were celebrated long before Christ was born. Since time immemorial, it has been in man's nature to worship something. And because all life seems so dependent on that burning ball of fire in the sky, so vital to the success of harvests, early man went down on his knees and prayed to the sun. In the winter, the strength of the sun being less, it became necessary to slaughter animals for food, and these became the first religious sacrifices. In December, the annual rebirth of the sun turned to an important festival, and many traditions and rituals became established. In Rome, on the 25th of December, the Dies Natalis Invicti Solis was celebrated the birth of the unconquered sun, sacred to Mithras, the god of light, and to Attis and Phrygian, the sun god. The festival was known as Saturnalia and was a period of celebrations from the 17th of December right through to the new year, Calends, when the Latins rejoiced that days were getting longer and the power of the sun getting stronger. It was a time of real merrymaking, when bonfires were lit, homes were decorated with special greenery, and people gave each other presents, and there was lots of fun and games. Not blowing up balloons and playing video games, but an early form of charades, which slaves dressed up as their masters and lords pretended to be servants, and it is said that people danced through the streets wearing very little but blackened faces and a smile. These pre-Christian celebrations didn't just take place in ancient Rome, for at the same time in Europe, the winter solstice, when the sun is farthest from the equator, and at a point when it appears to be returning, 
became known as the Festival of Yule in Britain, France, Gaul, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, and especially Norway, the Yule or Yule celebrations became the highlight of the year. Yule logs and candles were lit to the gods Odin and Thor. Houses were decorated with evergreens. Yule food and drink were prepared, and mistletoe was ceremoniously cut. Although over 2,000 years old, the Yule traditions are still continued today. In Britain, the Druids celebrated the festival of Nola, and it's thought that by some, Stonehenge was built as a temple to the sun, constructed in such a way that it cast shadows wherever the sun happened to be. In fact, practically every country in the world, from China to India, from South America to the Middle East, held celebrations at this time of year. In Greece, it was the birthday of Hercules, Ceres and Bacchus, an excuse to indulge in the grape. The Egyptians claimed it as a feast day of Horus. It was not until the 4th century that Pope Julius I decided that the 25th of December should be celebrated as the birthday of Jesus Christ, and Christmas as we know it began. We now celebrate Christmas every year, but with a little bit of pagan tradition, a Norse Yule log, druid candles, a drop of wine from Saturnalia, and a feast from the winter solstice. The evergreens and mistletoe still decorate our homes, and each year we continue to give presents to those who we love. That is the magic of Christmas. And now we have a poem uh, which has been written by one of our volunteer readers, Brian Hare, and I think it's lovely. It's called September Christmas. September shops stocked with tinsel trash. Christmas cheer can be bought for cash. Hotels advise book quite soon. Leave it too late, there'll be no room. Santa Claus arrives today, a big pink Cadillac pulling his sleigh. With his cotton wool whiskers white and curled, Santa's in his grotto, all's right with the world. In ye old oak inn with its plaster beams, People invent their Christmas dreams. The jokes are wild and the wit is droll. It's cosy in here. Let the good times roll. Record the festivities on video. Impress your friends with your Christmas show. Excite the kids with video games. Chosen with care for their street cred names. It's easy to forget in the razzmatazz the real reason for all this jazz. That in a sudden hush betwixt midnight and dawn, somewhere, sometime, a child was born. And now for some Christmas cheer by Barry Macy. It was 5am on a cold Christmas Eve. The village was in deep sleep as I made haste towards the railway station to catch the first train to London. Passing a holly tree by the ivy-covered churchyard wall, The words of a certain carol came to mind, and I began to sing as I stumbled on through what seemed almost impenetrable darkness, when, to my surprise, another singer joined in, a garden garden robin. Its sweet, clear song was quickly followed by another, cheerful greeting from the next garden and the next, and so it continued to the end of the road. I counted twelve Christmas robins, one sing from each garden I passed. Just the snow missing, I mused, 
Images of family, friends, roaring fires, cards, smiling faces, rosy cheeks, puddings, rum sauce, mulled wine, and the giving of presents began to fill my head. I chuckled, thinking that if if it hadn't been Christmas crack, if I hadn't been Christmas crackers enough to be out and about so early, I would have missed the magical moment. Cheerfully glancing back towards the village, still slumbering beneath the vague outline of the church steeple, I wondered if anyone would wake here and marvel at the musical Christmas greetings delivered by the Robin Choir. On the station platform, huddling against the wall, a cold fellow traveller jumped in surprise at a cheery me. Compliments of the season, I offered with a smile, hoping to stir the Christmas spirit. The traveller brightened. And to you too, he smiled. A crowded train arrived with glum of faces pressed against the windows. Merry Christmas, everyone, called the traveller as we jumped aboard. The glum faces brightened. And a Merry Christmas to you too. The spirit of Christmas called back as snowflakes began to fall. And next it's our Christmas quiz. Um, Ten questions with answers later in the programme. So first question, which country first started the tradition of putting up a Christmas tree? Second question, which popular Christmas beverage is also called milk punch? Number three, how many ghosts show up in A Christmas Carol? Question four, how do you say Merry Christmas in Spanish? Question five, where does the royal family traditionally celebrate Christmas? Question six, how many mince pies, to the nearest hundred million, are eaten in the UK every year? Question seven, what is traditionally hidden inside a Christmas pudding? Question eight, in what year was the Queen's speech first televised? Question nine, which film features the song Walking in the Air? And my final question, what did the Victorians fill their mince pies with? Times. All over the country, this Christmas, pan- this Christmas pantomimes will be performed from the London Palladium to village halls, and they'll follow a long, tried and tested format with lots of audience, audience participation, such as... Oh, oh no, no, it isn't. isn't. Behind you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for the slapstick and corny jokes as well. It's a tradition peculiar to this country. can be traced back to the mummers' plays of the Middle Ages and it's often a child's first introduction to the theatre. Now, in Whitney, the Buttercross Theatre production will be staging Snow White and we were invited to the Corn Exchange for a rehearsal a couple of weeks ago. And it was so encouraging to see so many young people amongst the cast. First of all, we'll interview one of the producers, and then secondly, the whole cast will give us one of the numbers from the show. 
Well, here we are in the Corn Exchange in Whitney, where we've been invited to a rehearsal of this year's Christmas pantomime. I'm talking to Debbie Tufts, who's one of the creative directors of the pantomime. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Peter. So, Debbie, what's this year's pantomime all about, then? Uh, It's Snow White. Um, As you can imagine, I'm sure that uh, all your listeners will know uh, what Snow White is uh, is all about. Yeah. We've got quite a few um, quirky dwarves. Right. They're a little bit different. Um, Mm. And we've got a talking mirror uh, Mm. who breaks out into song. Wow. Um, and yeah, but apart from that, I mean, it's uh, it's sort of like traditional panto, but mixed with a bit of modern, uh, with lots of audience participation. Oh, absolutely! Absolutely! Oh, right. yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay. And when did you start rehearsals for this pantomime? Then? Uh, so we started literally as we finished um, another show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did nine to five the musical. Oh yes. Um, so that was around about the ten- well, about the tenth of September. Gosh. So we've yeah. been going. Been a good yeah, while. Only, yeah, yeah. Only a few weeks. Yeah. Only a yeah. few weeks. Are they all? Working perfect now? Uh, nearly. nearly. There are some that like to hug the script. Absolutely. But, um, yes, 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 they're yes. doing well. Okay. And when are you going to be performing this to the public then? Okay, so we are, uh, the dates are from the 14th to the 17th of uh, December. Yeah. Um, and then we've got the 21st to the 24th of December and then a break, and then the 29th to the 31st of right. December. So there's about 13 performances Okay. All. And I'm coming on Christmas Eve. Oh, excellent. <laughs> we're, we're almost sold out. I mean, oh, we've good, got good, about good. five more tickets good, left for that good, one. Good, good, <laughs> good. Uh, and and uh, does your drama group meet regularly, other than the pantomime? You know? Yeah, well, I mean, we do classes. Right. So um, we, do, uh, we do drama classes, we do dance yeah. uh, for young and uh, adults. Okay. Um, and then we hold open auditions for, right. um, for any of the shows that we do. Yeah. So rather than it meets sort of regularly, mm. we have the classes and then we have, you know, we go straight on you to take a show. it from there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, yeah. After Panto's finished on the 31st of December, we go straight into uh, rehearsals for Avenue Q ah, um, right. uh, the next week. So, wow. you know, we kind of like go, Keep you know, going. show after, yeah, yeah, yeah. We do show after show. We do about four or five shows a year. Yeah. Well, it sounds as if you've got an enthusiastic group there anyway. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You, you enjoy doing it? Oh, yeah. It's absolutely, <laughs> yes, it's my passion. Your passion, right? My passion. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, and. Uh, well, you've told me about planning further productions for the for the coming year. Then, mm. well, all we can do from now is to wish you. Well, you can't say that, can you? Break a leg. <laughs> Break a leg. That's right. <laughs> Break a leg for the pantomime when it comes. Oh, lovely! Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for coming along. Well, thank you so much for for, for for receiving us. You know, That's yeah, been brilliant. They and sounded good in there. Yeah. Brilliant. I hope you enjoy the show. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Right. On with the rehearsal, then. On with the rehearsals. (laughs) We will lead the way together with a hip parade. Together, your hand. 
And now a poem by Bob Lazar Atwood called It's Christmas Time Again. Put your problems on probation, run your troubles off the track, throw your worries out the window, lift the burdens from your back. Silence all your inner critics, with your conscience make amends, and allow yourself some happiness. It's Christmas time again. Call a truce with those who bother you, let all the fighting cease, give your differences a breather, and declare a time of peace. Don't let angry feelings taint the precious time you have to spend, and allow yourself some happiness. It's Christmas time again. Like some cool, refreshing water, or a gentle summer breeze, like a fresh bouquet of flowers, or the smell of autumn leaves. It's a banquet for the spirit, filled with family, food and friend. So allow yourself some happiness. It's Christmas time again. And now this is an article by Jane Holmes, a former volunteer and editor, and she writes about Christmas cards. Christmas cards. In 1840, the Postal Service began due to the help of Sir Henry Cole, a civil servant interested in making sure rich and poor people could communicate with family and friends more easily. Christmas cards as we know them now, were first dispatched in 1843. Sir Henry Cole and his friend John Horsley designed a card and made it cheap enough at 1p for poorer people to buy at least a few and have the pleasure of sending them and receiving them from others. In the 1880s, railways were being built and so the cards and parcels began to be sent via rail. This meant that they would arrive more quickly than by horse and carriage. The first cards had a simple design of the nativity story on them and just Merry Christmas inside as a greeting. As the years progressed, pictures of robins and snowy scenes were also to be seen. Postmen at that time wore red uniforms, thus the name Red Robin began to be used. It could refer either to a garden bird or to the postman who delivered the post. Snowy scenes showed wintry landscapes or houses and children making snowmen. In Victorian times, cards were mostly handmade. Lace and ribbons framed the picture on the front and people wrote in their greetings very neatly on the inside. Gradually, the designs on postcards had become modernised and jokes included as greetings. Many cards are sent via internet and appear on a computer screen rather than being posted and put through the letterbox. Personally, I think it's rather nice to receive a pile of cards through the letterbox. Nowadays, postage can be sent abroad too. What a long way posting greetings has gone since 1843. Well, we've just heard about the evolution of uh, Christmas cards. And back to the same era, this piece is about the Victorian Christmas tree. Behind the double doors of the Victorian parlour stood the Christmas tree, an old German custom, and there's the answer to one of the quiz questions, (laughs) the Victorians enlarged upon, both in style and decoration. The tradition had come to England by way of Queen Victoria's great-great-grandfather, 
King George I. When she was queen, Victoria had a Christmas tree at Windsor Castle. As a result, Christmas trees became the popular fashion in England and the central feature of the Victorian family Christmas. What made the Victorian Christmas tree so special was its elaborate decoration. Decorations included gingerbread men, marzipan sweets, hard sweets, biscuits, fruit, cotton wool Santas, paper fans, tin soldiers, whistles, wind-up toys, pine cones, dried fruits, nuts, berries and trinkets of all kinds. It's a wonder you could see the tree. Paper cornucopias filled with nuts, sweets and other treats were Victorian favourites. It was not uncommon to find some small homemade gifts, such as tiny hand-stitched dolls or children's mittens and freshly baked treats like sugar biscuits. Hand-dipped candles were placed carefully on each of the branches and a Christmas doll or angel could usually be found adorning the top of the tree. Some things do survive. And now here are some Christmas cracker jokes for you. Why did the pop group ask the turkey to join them? Because he was the only one with drumsticks. (laughs) What do you get if you eat Christmas decorations? Tinselitis. What do they sing at a snowman's birthday? Freeze a jolly good fellow. Why couldn't the skeleton go to the Christmas party? He had nobody to go with. Which athlete is warmest during winter? A long jumper. (laughs) What happened to the man who stole an advent calendar? He got 25 days. Why can't Christmas trees knit? Because they lose their needles. And where does Santa go when he's sick? The elf centre. <laughs> what was the snowman doing in the vegetable patch? Uh, picking his nose? Oh. <laughs> now, cold beauty outside and warm cheer within. The Christmas story is essentially a pastoral one, and no one can appreciate, more, appreciate it more than the farmer. On Christmas morning, the dairy farmer has to rise early, because the milk tanker will be early. His men will be away, but everything will have been prepared beforehand, and by 9am he will be able to go in for breakfast and the ceremony of present giving. He will go out again later when perhaps a feeble ray of sunshine is slanting into the cattle shed and glinting on the clean straw. The farm is unusually silent. No tractors, no travellers' cars. Lying around or quietly eating at the silage face or mangers stuffed with hay, the cows can seem even more placid and benign than usual. Moving slowly amongst his cows, along the calf pens and around the the sheep in the field outside, 
No farmer can help feeling touched by the spirit of all the Christmas days that have gone before. I remember one particular Christmas morning. At seven o'clock, the first suggestion of dawn was turning the cloudless sky above Carlton Bank to a luminous steely blue. Poised there, as though resting one fragile point on the heather, was the last thin crescent of the December moon. Close to it, very bright, was the morning star, Venus. The dark and frozen fields were completely silent. No traffic moved for miles around. An owl hooted from the wood, and as the dawn light strengthened, a partridge twittered amongst the turnips. That was all. A quiet prelude to a day of frozen brilliance, of cold beauty outside and warm cheer within. The story behind Silent Night. The lyrics to Silent Night were written by Josef Moore, a man whose name was unloved in his hometown of Salzburg. He was ordained on the 21st of August 1815 and was sent to Obendorf, just north of Salzburg. And there he met Franz Xavier Gruber, a local schoolteacher who would become organist at the old St Nicholas Church the following year. The friendship of the two led to the creation of Silent Night. Silent Night, or Stille Nacht in the original German, was created because Moore needed a carol for worship. On Christmas Eve 1818, Moore visited Gruber with a poem he had written a few years earlier. Gruber quickly arranged the song to be played on a guitar with a choir because the church organ was broken. That evening at midnight mass, Gruber strapped on his guitar and led the congregation at St Nicholas in the first rendition of Silent Night. Nearly a hundred years later, just over a century ago, the men in the trenches heard something unusual, singing. On a crisp, clear morning, 120 years ago, thousands of British, Belgian and French soldiers put down their rifles, stepped out of their trenches and spent Christmas mingling with their German enemies along the Western Front. In the hundred years since, the event has been seen as a kind of miracle, a rare moment of peace, just a few moments into war that would eventually claim over 15 million lives. But what actually happened on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day of 1914? And did they really play football on the battlefield? It seems the sheer misery of daily life in the cold, wet, dull trenches was enough to motivate troops to initiate the truce. Nevertheless, some two-thirds of the troops, about a 100,000 people, are believed to have participated in the legendary truce. No one knows where it began or how it spread, or if, by some curious festive magic, it broke out simultaneously across the trenches. Although the Christmas truce may have been a one-off in the conflict... It speaks to the fact that at its heart it symbolises a very human desire for peace, no matter how fleeting. The truce began with carol singing from the trenches on Christmas Eve to strains of Silent Night or the Germans singing Stille Nacht.
The recording of Silent Night came from Voicebox. And now here are some misleading notices for you, and I wonder if any of our listeners can provide us with any more. First one was seen in a Moscow monastery. You are welcome to the cemetery where famous Russian and Soviet composers, artists and writers are buried daily except Thursdays. This is seen in the Peak District. Please leave Heather for all to enjoy. (laughs) Mine's a simple message from a Harrogate shop. Bargain basement, upstairs. And this is on a school staff notice board. Children may not skate on the frozen water unless passed by the head teacher. And from a Doncaster cafe, the management is looking for a mature person to cook. And from Wensleydale, we get Take Care, Lums on Road. And from a newspaper advertisement, Labrador for sale, eats anything, fond of children. <laughs> And from a Sheffield cafe, why are they always from up north? Toilet for sitting down customers only. (laughs) Another one from up north, children's playground in Halifax. Playground fine for littering. From a safari park, lions, please stay in the car. (laughs) And from a newspaper advertisement, guillotine wanted for playgroup. Instructions on a heat gun. Do not use as a hairdryer. And useful information on a child's Superman costume. Wearing this item does not enable you to fly. Sign from the A1. Caution. Water on road when wet. (laughs) And this is a newspaper advertisement. For sale, Braille Dictionary. Must be seen to appreciate. Uh, We can't have a Christmas magazine without including something about school nativity plays. And the school's inspector, Gervais Finn, must have, during the course of his career, witnessed hundreds of them. And he's encapsulated those experiences into two poems read by Valerie and then Peter. And this one is entitled Christmas Lights. The lights on the Christmas tree winked and the snow fell thick and heavy outside. From the walls of the school hall, angels spread their silver wings and the three kings held high their gifts. The lights dimmed and silence fell. Mums and dads, grannies and grandpas stared at the stage expectantly for the Christmas story to begin. A spotlight flooded the stage and a small child entered. Wide-eyed, she stared at the sea of smiling faces before her. Welcome, she whispered, to our... to our... Then she froze like a frightened rabbit, caught in the headlights' glare. To our nativity, came the teacher's hushed voice off stage. To our began the child again, to our nativity, repeated the teacher. Harvest Festival, announced the child. (laughs) 
And it would seem that not all children necessarily want to be involved in the nativity play. Oh, miss, I don't want to be Joseph. Miss, I really don't want to be him. With a cloak of bright red and a towel on my head and a cotton wool beard on my chin. Oh, miss, please don't make me a shepherd. I just won't be able to sleep. I'll go weak at the knees and wool makes me sneeze. And I really am frightened of sheep. Oh, miss, I just can't be the landlord. Who says there's no room in the inn? I'll get in a fright when it comes to the night, and I know I'll let Mary in. Oh, miss, you're not serious. An angel? Can't Peter take that part instead? I'll look such a clown in a white silly gown and a halo stuck off me head. Oh, miss, I am not being a camel, or a cow, or an ox, or an ass. I'll look quite absurd, and I won't say a word, and all of the audience will laugh. Oh, miss, I'd rather not be a wise man who brings precious gifts from afar. But the part right for me, and I hope you'll agree, in this play, can I please be the star? A poem by Clive Sansom called Snowflakes. And did you know that every flake of snow that forms so high in the grey winter sky and falls so far is a six-pointed star? Each crystal glows a flower, each crystal grows a flower as perfect as a rose. Lace could never make the patterns of a flake. No brooch or figured silver could approach its delicate craftsmanship. And think, each pattern is distinct. Of all the snowflakes floating there, the million million in the air, none is the same. Each star is newly forged, as faces are, shaped to its own design, like yours and mine. And yet, each one melts when its flight is done, holds frozen loveliness a moment even less, suspends itself in time and passes like a rhyme. So now here's a poem by Pam Ayres called Crabby Christmas. Not quite her usual cheery self. I've got my own nativity set with figures carved from wood. I put it on my sideboard every year. It looks quite good. Mary's dressed in blue, see? There's a little seat for her. And a crib for baby Jesus with his frankincense and myrrh. Now, I fully understand that all good things come to an end, and I must scrap my little set for fear it may offend all the Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Trappists, Sikhis, well, all the flock, who might see my baby Jesus and be paralysed with shock. Forget the Christmas dinner, as my appetite is small, for a poor old shut-up turkey which has had no life at all. They are created creatures, so their plight we cannot see. And though they may be cheap, they don't look bootiful to me. Hear the rasping of the tinsel and the rattle of the cash. The streets are full of shoppers and the shops are full of trash. Christmases are coming, tally-ho and toodaloo. There's a Santa on the chimney and his leg is down the flue. There's a reindeer on the rooftop. There are sleigh bells on the sled. 
There is flickering and flashing and they're going white and red. The the silent starry night is by illumination rent. I know God said I am the light, but is this what he meant? See my neighbor's house? There's an electric yuletide log, a robin and a snowman and yes, Kermit the frog. The local power station, it is standing all aglow and it's heading for a meltdown like Chernobyl long ago. I'm going down the garden. I'm going down the shed. If anybody wants me, you can tell them I've fled. I might emerge on Boxing Day if common sense prevails and I'll buy you all a present. They'll be cheaper in the sales. And now some thoughts about Christmas gifts by Gervais Finn. Bah, humbug, I exclaimed, telling my family I would, what, would not want any presents on a recent Christmas. It's not that I'm a Christmas killjoy. I love the festive season and most of the things it brings with it. But I honestly do not need any presents. Buy a cow for Africa, I told my son, or, or make a donation to the donkey sanctuary. You see, I have all I need. I want for nothing. I certainly do not require any more socks or scarves, shirts or cardigans, ties or underpants. I prefer to buy such things myself and do so in the January sales when everything is half price. Invariably, any Christmas offerings of this kind which I receive end up in an Oxfam shop in the new year. At one time I did like to receive a bottle of single malt for Christmas, but my daughter put a stop to that. Elizabeth is a research psychologist at Newcastle University, looking into effects of alcohol on intelligence. She used to talk to her father, but now she tends to observe me as if I were a case study. A week after taking up her post, I found bottles of wine had mysteriously disappeared, Lizzie watches me eagle-eyed if I so much as look in the direction of a decanter. I only buy one Christmas present for my wife. The children are quite content with cheques. Each year I ask Christine what she would like. Each year it is the same response. Surprise me. I once considered jumping out from behind the Christmas tree wearing only a fake leopard skin thong (laughs) with love and hate tattooed on my knuckles. That would have surprised her, no mistake. In the past, Christine has received bags she never uses, CDs she never plays, chocolates she never consumes and jewellery she never wears. She is very gracious on opening the presents and declares with great enthusiasm that the gift is lovely and one she really wanted. Then it is returned to the box and doesn't see the light of day again. One year I did surprise her and every member of the assembled family as well. A colleague in the office at Harrogate inquired what I had bought for my wife that Christmas. A very nice rope of pearls, I informed him. Pearls, he snorted. Pearls? That's what old women wear. Then the expert on the psychology of women informed me that when women get older, they still want to feel attractive and desirable. You need to get her a bottle of expensive perfume, an emerald ring, an outrageous bouquet of winter roses or a or sexy non, uh, negligee. 
I was prevailed upon to accompany this colleague to an exclusive ladies' shop in Harrogate and to, to buy some skimpy red silk underwear. On Christmas morning, with all the family gathered in the lounge, Christine opened her present and held up the contents. It was as if she'd been poked with a cattle prod. Our four children turned the colour of the underwear. My sainted mother, sitting in the armchair by the fire, shook her head, sighed wearily, and told my wife, Put them away, Christine. His father went through that stage. This year, I settled for a flat-screen television set. When the 25th of December wasn't Christmas Day. In 1752, country folk who objected to the introduction of the new Gregorian calendar, when 11 days were lost from the year, remembered the Glastonbury Thorns' ancient reputation for flowering at Christmas, according to the London Daily Advertiser. We hear from Quainton in Buckinghamshire that upwards of 2,000 people came on the 24th of December at night with lanterns and candles to view a black thorn which grows in that neighbourhood and which was remembered, this year only, to be a slip from the famous Glastonbury thorn that it always budded on the 24th at night, was full-blown the next day and went off at night. But the people, finding no buds, nor the appearance of any, it was agreed by all that the 25th of December could not possibly be the right Christmas day and accordingly refused to go to church. Now I have here a, a recipe for a Christmas fruit cake. And first of all we have the ingredients, one cup of water, one cup of sugar, four large eggs, three, cup, three cups of dried fruit, one teaspoon of baking soda, a teaspoon of salt, one cup of brown sugar, lemon juice, nuts, and one full bottle of your favourite whiskey. And the method. Sample the whiskey to check for quality. Take out a large bowl. Check the whiskey again to be sure that it is of the highest quality. Pour one level cup and drink. Ooh. Repeat. Turn on the electric mixer. Beat one cup of butter in a large fluffy bowl. Add one teaspoon of sugar and beat again. Make sure the whiskey is still okay. Try another cup. Turn off the mixer. Break two eggs and add to the bowl and chuck in the cup of dried fruit. Mix on the burner. If the fried fruit gets stuck on the beaters, pry it loose with a screwdriver. Sample the whiskey to check for toxicity. Next, sift two cups of salt. 
or something. Who cares? Check the whiskey. Now sift the lemon juice and strain your nuts. Add one tablespoon of sugar or something, whatever you can find. Grease the oven. Turn on the cake tin to 350 degrees. Don't forget to beat off the turner. Throw the bowl out the window. Check the whiskey again. <laughs> Go to bed. Who the hell likes fruitcake anyway? Here's a short poem entitled What Do I Wish You by Charlotte Gray. The family reunited, all squabbles set aside. Food in the larder, knocks at the door, friendly faces, parcels piling up, cards from everyone you love. Nothing forgotten, nothing singed, laughter, a little silliness, hugs, kisses, happy memories. I wish with all my heart that your Christmas will be all that it was meant to be, a little warmth in the depth of winter, a light in the dark. And now a ghost story called The Tale of the Dunstans. In coaching days, the A40 road from London to South Wales was one of Britain's great highways. It linked London, Oxford, Gloucester and Milford Haven from where packet boats plied to and from Ireland. Not surprisingly, there are persistent tales of highwaymen who found rich pickings on this famous turnpike. It was in practice surprisingly difficult to rob the stagecoaches, which were likely to contain several well-armed travellers as well as a burly guard. In truth, there was nothing romantic about highway robbery, most so-called highwaymen being merely common thugs. The Dunstan brothers were three such unsavoury characters. Born in the former manor house at Fallbrook, they belonged to a large but impoverished yeoman family. Richard, the older brother, who was born around 1745, is said to have suffered some form of injustice, and as a result he turned to crime. Enlisting the aid of his brothers, Harry and Thomas, he formed a small criminal gang. At first they merely broke into houses and robbed unsuspecting travellers, but becoming more ambitious, they managed to hold up the Oxford mail coach and get away with £500. Nemesis, however, struck them down when an attempt to rob Tangley Hall near Burford was foiled. The occupants of the house had been forewarned, and when Richard Dunstan put his arm through a small lookout shutter in the oak front door, the defenders grabbing, grabbed his hand and wouldn't let go. Fearing capture, they cut off his arm at the elbow, and the trio galloped off into the night. Richard Dunstan died soon afterwards as a, re as a result of shock and the loss of blood. But Thomas and Harry remained at large until 1784, 
when they joined a group of gamblers in a disreputable alehouse known as Cap's Lodge. The Dunstans were violent and quarrelsome individuals and they soon became involved in a drunken brawl. At length they were overpowered and having been arrested they were taken to Gloucester Jail. Having been tried, they were sentenced to death by hanging, the executions being carried out at Gloucester. The authorities decided to make an example of the dead criminals by hanging their bodies in iron bands from an oak tree in Witchwood Forest. For months afterwards, people came to view the rotting corpses in the gibbet tree, while the drinking den at Cap's Lodge also enjoyed momentary notoriety. The tale of the evil Dunstan brothers inevitably passed into local folklore, and as such there are several associations with Minster Lovell. One story relates how the long-dead Dunstans continue to gallop along the lanes and highways of West Oxfordshire, and to this day there are people who claim to have heard their ghostly hoofbeats passing over Minster Bridge in the middle of the night. Dr Ambrose, who took a great interest in local folklore, was so keen on the story of the Dunstans that he moved the remains of their cottage and re-erected it in an old quarry overlooking the Mill Conference Centre. Uh, this is Ghost Stories from Minster Lovell. The ruined Lovell Mansion evokes an atmosphere of overwhelming melancholy in many people, particularly in late autumn or winter, when white mists hang low over the meadows. To Ethel Carlton Williams, quote, the sight of the broken walls and tattered chimneys of the manor house bring a feeling of intolerable sorrow to all who see them. Some visitors feel that there is even a so-called time warp around the ruins, which has resulted in several strange and disquieting incidents. On one occasion, shortly after World War II, a guest at the Swan Inn decided to walk down the village street to see the manor house. The lady in question was a former wren who had worked as a decoder and was not given to flights of fancy. She walked along the street on a late summer evening and soon reached the manor house, which was much larger than she had imagined it would be. She walked through the churchyard but was unable to enter the house, which appeared to be surrounded by a battlemented wall. She could nevertheless see the glow of lighted, unfamiliar music. Retracing her steps, she returned to the swan, When asked if she had enjoyed her walk, she explained that the site had been closed. A fellow guest pointed out that even when the custodian's hut was shut, a public footpath passed through the site and enabled visitors to gain access to the monument. On the following morning, the ex-wren again walked down to the manor house, and to her surprise, the site was indeed a ruin, with no curtain wall to impede entry. There was no rational explanation for this mystery, though the baffled visitor refused to believe that she might have strayed into some other time or place. 
Other visitors to the site claim to have experienced similar time warps, while there are countless tales of phantom knights in white armour and ghostly medieval maidens. And for everybody waiting anxiously for the quiz answers from earlier, the questions earlier, here they are. Question one, the answer was Germany. Question two was eggnog. Question three, the answer was four, the spirits of Christmas past, present and future, and Jacob Marley. Question four was Feliz Navidad. Question five, Sandringham. Question six, about the mince pies, 800 million of them we eat. Question seven, it's a silver sixpence in your pudding. Question eight, first television broadcast 1957 by the Queen. And the song Walking in the Air, question nine, comes from the film The Snowman. And the Victorians filled their mince pies with minced beef. And now, a precious gift, a smile. It cannot be bought or borrowed. It cannot be sold, stolen or sold. But this precious gift, when freely given, is a pleasure to behold. For it reassures the frightened. It soothes those who are sad and comforts the dejected and makes the mournful glad. It brightens up this weary world and lightens up our life, brings sunshine to the shadows at a time of pain and strife. A smile. Well, that's all we've got time for, and thanks to Eric for the recording and supplying the music, and we hope that you enjoy listening to this magazine as much as we've enjoyed making it. Now, remember that you don't have to return the memory stick as promptly as your weekly one. Just send it back just as soon as you've finished with it. And before we all go, we'd like to wish you a A Merry Merry Christmas. Christmas! Good tidings we bring.